Welcome to the Unsweetened Sayo podcast. My name is Siobhan Harris. I am a certified integrative nutrition health coach and the founder of unsweetenedsayo.com. I gave up all sugar and all flour on January 13th, 2018, and am finally free of my addiction. My mission is to help other sugar addicts find their path to freedom and live the sweet life without sugar. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 89 of Unsweetened Sio, the podcast. Today, I'm really excited about my guest, Maddie Lansdowne. We were introduced by mutual friends at Quit Sugar Summit, so I've been really looking forward to talking with him today. Maddie is an in-demand nutritional therapist, international speaker, health and nutrition coach, and consultant for high-level corporate clients, business owners, and nine-to-five workers. As a scientist of biology at a major Melbourne hospital and having worked in the fields of cancer research and vaccine formulation, Maddie developed the core belief that genetic diseases are, for the most part, a result of misinformation and bad food consumption habits passed down from generation to generation, rather than a result of genetic predisposition to an illness. Maddie's medical knowledge combined with extensive research and self-testing of non-traditional dieting and safe fasting methods have made him an internationally recognized voice in the field of intermittent fasting and nutritional optimization. He is regularly invited to international wellness events, retreats, and conferences as a coach, panelist, and speaker. Likewise, Maddie's weekly podcast, How to Not Get Sick and Die, provides his followers with a deep dive into developing sustainable, healthy habits. So welcome, Maddie. So excited to have you with us. Hey, Siobhan. Thanks so much for inviting me on the show. And a shout out to Danny as well for connecting us. Yes. Thank you, Danny. Well, let's just dive right in because uh, as always, this time goes by too quickly and I'm sure we have tons that we can talk about. So I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about, I just think your history is so interesting. So if you just maybe tell us a little bit about your history and even your own health journey would be great. Yeah, sure. So I'm in Australia, obviously can tell by my accent. Um, I grew up in the countryside with my mum as a nurse and I was in a small enough town that I used to go to work with my mum at the hospital. And so little me loved going to the hospital, running around because I was getting all the attention from all the old people there because they were just excited to see someone because sadly many of them, you know, were I didn't know at the time, but many of them were dying. Many of them were really, really sick. And many of them had families that essentially found them either a burden or forgotten about them. Um, And so I developed this really, really positive relationship at a very young age with the hospital. And so, and looking up to my mum as well, of course, being a nurse. Um, And so fast forward until I, you know, become an adult. I moved to the city to do study and research um, and do my degree and then sort of move into working in healthcare myself. And so sort of through that journey of having a positive relationship as a, as a youngster and then going to university and being the first lands down in my family to ever go to university, uh, I was, you know, so impressed by medicine and science and I was super, super passionate about it. And I was like, this is amazing. Humans have created this this behemoth of an industry that just helps so many people. Um, and I was just so passionately a scientist. Um, and 
I, I got to the point where I got a job in a hospital um, and I'd worked a few jobs by this point, uh, but I, and it just didn't feel right. So I'd been there about six months to a year before a lot of the stuff in the cancer hospital that I was a part of. Uh, and my job there was, you know, I was pretty low on the ladder uh, because I really realized quite quickly that this was not a ladder that I wanted to climb. But it just didn't feel right. Um, and, and the big thing that didn't feel right was that we never talked about causation of disease. And I was, it was just confusing because why, you know, why wouldn't you do that in order to figure out how to make the disease go away? Seems like such a basic question, right? Um, and I, I, I literally asked my professor that uh, and multiple clinicians that were around me and literally laughed at like as in that sort of such a ridiculous thing to ask and, and I'm sort of you know very naive at this point I'm just like oh like why don't we do that like uh, you know just genuine curiosity which is what I was taught where scientists should come from just asking questions um, and I was quickly shut down and I continued on asking questions really challenging questions that feel very uncomfortable for a lot of people like why are nine types of chemotherapy considered carcinogenic that's an interesting question uh, that you know I was told to not ask again uh, you know why do mammograms uh, you know, throw radiation at the human body in abundant amounts or excessive amounts rather. You know, I was asking, starting to ask all of these questions. Why do we match drug with symptom rather than find the cause and eliminate the cause? All of these questions, people would either laugh at me uh, or just be like, oh, Maddie, you know, your head's in the clouds type answers. Um, and it just didn't feel right. I was like, these people that are 30, 40 years my senior, uh, you know, that have been doing this their entire lives, that have built careers, not just careers, but an important thing to acknowledge is they've built their identity on this industry. It, they, they couldn't answer these questions. Um, and I was essentially told that, you know, if we were able to answer these questions or if, or if th those things were the answer, we'd be looking at them, uh, um, which, which I learned later on was a naive comment of theirs because that then led me to do sort of my own research, sort of, you know, a bit of a side hustle being like, I'm going to research what I'm doing at work and, and the, the hospital and the system. And again, g genuine curiosity. Um, and I sort of went down the rabbit hole and I learned about the foundations of Western medicine, uh, the Rockefeller family, the Rothschild family. Like it's a really dark, it's a really dark rabbit hole to go down to find out about the, the roots of Western medicine which isn't all bad. Acute emergency medicine is it's, it's the best thing. Diagnosis, investigation, it's the best thing. Uh, but when it comes to managing chronic disease, for the most part, uh, I think that there's far better options out there. And so on this journey, I discovered traditional Chinese medicine. I discovered Ayurveda, which is uh, traditional Indian medicine. Uh, ch you know, Chinese medicine's been around for about 10,000 years. Ayurveda is about 6,500. And then we compare it to, and Australian Aboriginal medicine has been around longer than all of them. Uh, and then we compare it to Western medicine, uh, which is about 150 years old. It's, you know, it's, the, it's like a toddler in comparison. Um, and there's plenty of Chinese people in the world and there's plenty of Indian people in the world. So they're, you know, their methods that have been around for thousands of years clearly work to some degree, right? Um, and so I got to this place where I was just really confused in myself. I was this passionate scientist and I was like, I'm so confused. Like, I was thinking that, you know, nutrition was hippie nonsense and that diet and lifestyle medicine was ridiculous stuff that the people, you know, down the road with dreadlocks talked about. Um, and, and I was really sort of, you know, I realized that it had been characterized that way because the food industry 
required people to know nothing about the food, which then got them sick. And it was just this sort of rotating system where I realized the problem happens at home with food and stress and, and sleep and, and things like that. But the thing, the big thing that we do every day guaranteed is everybody eats. And I was like, if the problem happens at home in the kitchen and then they come to the hospital and then we send them back home, of course, there's going to be no cure. Of course, there's going to be no solution because we send them straight back into the cause. And then I was introduced to functional medicine and I started connecting with people, started my podcast uh, and started connecting with patients all around the world that had cured incurable diseases through diet and lifestyle medicine, started connecting with doctors that had sort of, you know, taken a step out of the hospital environment uh, and begun working with patients in a functional way as well as naturopaths traditional chinese medicine doctors um and yeah and so i guess now i'm here today and obviously we're on the quit sugar summit so i've done a lot of events like that speaking all around the world uh, about yeah nutrition as medicine nutrition as as a way to make you live your best best life essentially yeah that's amazing your background i think and um really making that shift from scientific mind to, like you said, more of the, the nutrition lifestyle, things that you might've considered, like you said, hippie or woo-woo or, or whatever. Um, I'm curious along this time about your own health. Like, did you have any health crises or how are you eating and how have your own health habits shifted as you've like gained all this knowledge? Yeah, that's an interesting question because a lot of people that end up in this space end up here because Western medicine failed them. Um, and I also work at a functional medicine clinic and it, it virtually it, they deal exclusively with people that have had Western medicine fail them, um, you know, for decades. So I actually didn't have a health journey that was, you know, complex or confusing or led me down a path where I took drugs that ruined my body or anything like that. I just, I'm just here out of passion for the truth. And, and the thing that got me started was just honestly anger. I was so angry that the pharmaceutical system and the food system and the government guidelines for nutrition were just lies, you know, and it was, I was just livid. I was just livid. I mean, once I understood that, the history of it, I was a little less angry because I, I try in order for me to get up every day, I try and frame it in everybody had the best intention uh, because I just need to think that about humans in order for me to not, you know, be depressed. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, and, and so for me, it was just passion for the truth. Another motivating factor was at the same time as working at the, at the cancer hospital that I worked at for seven years was that my partner for that I was with, you know, for most of my 20s or all of my 20s virtually, um, she went through some chronic health conditions. So she has um, endometriosis, adenomyosis and had and developed lupus. And through her journey of, you know, taking medications and she's a clinical nurse specialist. So we went on a very similar journey at the same time, although she was living it, um, you know, like the contraceptive pill just, just destroyed her body, like absolutely destroyed her body along with the seven surgeries that came as a result of it. And 
and just nothing helped until she started managing it herself through diet and lifestyle and going to see, you know, everyone from, um, you know, doing psychology work and energy medicine work all the way through to, you know, nutrition and, and colonics and all of these types of things. And she's now at the best she's ever been in her life because she got, she's detoxed her body from the drugs. Um, and that's not to say that some of those, like, a lot of the drugs that you can have in a pharmaceutical context are actually really good to get you back on your feet. The problem is nobody takes you from there. Nobody says, okay, we've got things back into a place where we can now work on diet, lifestyle, habit change. Uh, and nobody does that work. Really, it should be you know, drugs that are a temporary option to help you then get control or get the reins back in your hands and then go from there. And that was very much Emily's experience too. So I was seeing what what I was doing at the hospital and sort of, you know, looking at the research and going to all these meetings and just thinking, you know, what what's going on here? And then watching M suffer as well at home was kind of like, oh, this is, you know, this isn't just my biased view. It's happening at here and it's happening here. And then, yeah, so I didn't go on my own health journey, but I was witness to many health journeys that, that I, complex health journeys that I believed could have been drastically improved. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting as well to be able to, and for her to have your support of you kind of doing that together as you're coming, researching and figuring these things out um, together must've been really good support, but has, I'm just curious, has your, have you tweaked some things as you've learned, you know, um, even if you haven't had any major health issues, I'm sure, you know, you found some things that you could do better. Oh, absolutely. I was, so I began learning this information at university uh, because I lived with the strength and conditioning coaches of the Geelong Cats, which is, which is an Australian football league team here in Australia. So I was living with these guys who were virtually photoshopped. We had the most elite athletes in the country hanging out at our house all the time. So at this point, I was, I was on a diet of, you know, every uni student. It was like bread, rice, pasta, and beer, and sometimes just beer, you know? <laughs> it was, so I've tweaked a lot. And, and to be honest, like, you know, I had a, little th a few little things with my gut um, as a result of doing that for several years, but they were so easily fixed once I realized what was going on, you know, like using nutrition, nutrition to fix my gut literally took four weeks. Like it was, it was not a major thing. Um, and once I knew what was going on and I caught it at obviously a very young age, but, um, but yeah, I've changed heaps. So I, on my journey of understanding this, I've experimented with virtually everything. Um, and so I've done, all the different diets. I was vegan for a while, vegetarian for a while. Um, I got really into fasting because the thing that I found in uh, all traditional medicines was that the commonality, not just medicines, but also religions. I'm not religious, but um, the point is that all of human history, there's been vast groups of humans fasting. Uh, and that's uh, whether that's for religious and spiritual purposes or health, either way, the body benefits health wise. And so uh, I, I started being like, well, if everybody's done it for all of human history up until about the last 100 years, then surely I'm capable. Uh, and then I started just experimenting, dipping my toes in the water, you know, one full day, then two full days, and then three full days. Uh, and I'm on, on a fast at the minute, but, um, and then, you know, moving it out to seven days, 10 days, and being like, I feel better than I've ever felt with food in my body. Like it's, it's so counterintuitive because we're, we're told, you know, 
eat six times a day to keep your metabolism up and you need energy and oh my god your body might run out of resources overnight if you don't feed it uh and you know which would be a terrible evolutionary mechanism because all the human species would die out the first day that food was food wasn't available so um i've tried virtually everything i know you're carnivore that's the next one on the list <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's pretty cool. So you're doing a fast right now. And I think a lot of people listening are really um, intrigued by the intermittent fasting world. So maybe let's start there and just talk about some benef benefits that you have found with fasting and maybe even some tips for people how to get started, you know? Um, and I just kind of also want to throw in at least my own two cents. You might disagree with me, Maddie, but as since I am a sugar you know, addict, I don't think I have played around more now that I'm three years into this journey fasting. I don't think I would have been able to do it in the very beginning. It would have been too much. I needed to get the sugar and the flour out first, give some time for my brain to heal. Now I feel like I can experiment a little bit more. So I just kind of want to throw that in there for people. If you are really addicted, it might be too much trying to do this all at once, but I know I have listeners you know, other listeners too. So I just wanted to talk about like fasting and just any kind of advice you have. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're bang on the money is that, and I have this, uh, I have this sort of phrase that I use with clients. It's one tweak a week. So you should never dive in the deep end, especially with fasting, because one of the worst, so most of the clients that I work with and potentially most people listening to this podcast have been through the the 80s or, or at least the 90s where they were exposed to some hardcore diet culture, you know, try and be skinny, try and shave the hips off that you've got bone defined. You know, you can't get rid of that stuff like it's your body. But we're, you know, especially women been beating up on themselves for so long as a result of advertising and marketing for, you know, half a century virtually that stuff's been pumped into us. And so if we take the extreme approach to fasting, we're just mimicking diet culture culture, which is going to ruin our metabolisms again, right? And, and there's so many ruined metabolisms as a result of that. So the one tweak a week idea is that you train your metabolism, your body, like the human body is all about adaptation. When, when something happens, it, it adapts to it. However, if it happens too radically, the adaptation can be can way overstep the mask, the mark, because it's it's like essentially freaking out that we've got to preserve this situation because we don't know what's happening. This is a huge curveball. We're in danger. And so with our metabolism, it can go into preservation mode. And that's why a lot of people can find it really challenging to lose any weight at all on, on, on any diet because th their body has been, their, their genetics have switched on preservation genetics, um, which is good evolutionarily. That's your body's doing the right thing. So the, so the point that I'm getting to though, is that with fasting, you definitely don't dive in the deep end. So you start, you know, I get everybody to start on like a week or two where they just monitor what's normal for them. So we figure out where they are. And then from there, we move one hour at a time, literally because we're training the body. And, and uh, so, and it's important to acknowledge that the, the longer the adaptation phase, the stronger the stability. So if you do something overnight, there's going to be no stability. One, your behavior is not there to support it. And two, your genetics haven't had enough time to adapt to the situation. But if you do it slowly over time, your body will just adapt to the situation progressively and you will barely even notice it. And the other thing too is that we want to train our hunger mechanisms and our ghrelin release and our leptin management. And so our, our hormones aren't just going to change 
dramatically overnight because we decided to do a fast, they're going to be pumping out ghrelin, which is the hunger hormone, which is like, so it's going to be like, feed me. Oh my God, what are you doing to us? But again, over time, it's like going to the gym, right? We don't, you don't just work out 12 hours on one day. You work out 30 minutes a day for, you know, three days a week. And then the muscle grows over time. If you do 12 hours a day for the month, well, you're going to damage the body, right? And the same thing's going to happen with your, with your metabolism, with your gut health uh, and all, and, and the way that your hunger operates in your body. So, so I guess there's two, two areas. So there's intermittent fasting and then there's water fasting. Intermittent fasting is essentially what happens in, in, within a 24 hour time period. Um, or you might hear it referred to as time restricted eating. Um, and so, that happens within 24 hours. So there might be 16 hours of water only, and then you have an eight hour eating window. That's the most common, which is 16, eight. Um, I find that most people naturally sit at about 12, 12, uh, get up, you know, get breakfast into us as soon as possible, you know, at 7am. They're not eating dinner until seven, eight, nine, sort of at night. So most people start there. And so the, the next week literally should just be 13, 11. That's it. And then feel get comfortable there and especially women especially women that have hormone challenges slow and steady trust me you got to do that and and even if it might even be easier to scale back and say i'm just going to try it three days this week you know because again the longer the adaptation phase the better the stability long term so we want to take it really really slow uh and so yeah you find you get to a point where you feel good and and important to note that intermittent fasting is not about restriction or deprivation you should not be starving you should not be super hungry it's not about calorie restriction it's just about moving the calories to a particular part of the day uh, and again with, with training that will be totally normal to you as long as you do it progressively um, and then and so you, you can do all sorts of ratios 18 6 16 8 uh, 23 and 1 uh, you know you can do whatever sits best for you uh, and it's different for everybody and then you go to water fasting. So water fasting is essentially beyond the 24 hours. It's you're sort of moving into 36 to 48 to 72 hours of just water and maybe salt. So you don't want to put anything in your body that requires uh, digestion. And a lot of people, so there's, there's clean fasting and dirty fasting. And a lot of people um, use dirty fasting in the beginning as they're training themselves. So dirty fasting is about is pretty much solely about weight loss and it means that the foods that you can put into your body uh, are, are pretty much zero calorie but they don't spike insulin right so that's the big thing there on a dirty fast but the reason it's a dirty fast is because even though a black coffee has virtually zero calories it's still nutrition and that nutrition still requires digestion. So you're not going to get the, the gut health recovery benefits, the rest, digest and repair benefits. If you have to switch on your, your gut every few hours to have a tea or a coffee. So, once you're good at the dirty fasting, you can then start moving into the space of clean fasting, which is just water. Um, and that allows your gut to switch off, to recover and have some time to, to do autophagy. And autophagy is like cellular cleanup, which means it's like, it's like the garbage man coming down the street and just cleaning up all the old cells that haven't been used in a while or that have been defective in a long time. And the, the interesting thing is there's so many issues with people's guts because the current way that we, we live and that we're educated to about nutrition is that people go 50, 60, 70 years without ever giving their gut a, even a short period of time to do some cleanup. There's always food that's always operate, operating, which is why I'm a big fan of clean fasting versus dirty fasting. But dirty fasting is usually a good tool to get to clean fasting. 
But I would always highly recommend you do this with uh, someone who knows what's going on because it is a space that most people have never ventured into. It should be moved into slowly with an expert because it's, it, it can be a challenging space to move into. And, and definitely, as you mentioned at the start, definitely don't start extreme. You know, you should you want to go into it with a clean, clean nutrition as well uh, in the lead up to it so that you can get the most out of it so that there's minimal cravings uh but you should probably work on the craving stuff and the hunger stuff before you get to a water fast um so it's, it's a bit of a journey like somebody will say to me maddie my goal this year is to uh, do a three-day fast and i'm uh, or, or this month and i'll say great we've got we're going to do this across the year like you know some people might do it in six months but in order to look after your body in the process we're, it's one tweak a week yeah. Oh, I love that one tweak a week and really appreciate you clarifying that. Cause I think there's a lot of misinformation out there about fasting. Um, and I just love that phrase, the longer the adapt adaptation phase, the longer and better stability long-term. I'm glad you said that several times that really resonated with me. Um, I think people just taking that one sentence will be really empowering for anything that you're doing that it doesn't have to happen overnight, you know, and actually the slower it is, the better it is because it's going to last. Absolutely. Sustainable. So I really love that. Yeah. So do not be listening and jump into, you know, your 72 hour water fast, which I think that's what you're <laughs> doing right now, Maddie. Is that right? You're doing yeah, it, I think yeah. it'll be 72. I'm, I'm at the. I'm very lucky. I've been doing this for several years now, so I can just kind of decide when it starts and ends. But again, I've built that muscle over years. Yeah, yeah. So not something to jump immediately into, but really, really fascinating. And just the concept of you know giving our bodies that break from digesting and all the energy that that does take. I mean, I think that's so true, especially in today's. Um, you know, world where people are told, oh, you have to eat, like you were saying, six times a day and all these mini meals. And that's actually better where that's again, where there's just so much information out there. That's, that's the interesting thing about nutrition. There's so many different theories out there. And a lot of times they contradict each other. So I think it can be overwhelming just to the average person listening that really does want to take some steps for their health, because there's just, you know, <laughs> all these different sides to the story. So um, with that in mind, what are some other kind of nutritional tweaks that you suggest for people that really, especially, um, you know, people listening that might have cancer in their genetic lines and are more worried that they are, you know, more likely to get it? What are some, you know, tips that you give people that they can start doing now? The best thing that anyone can do for preventing or delaying any disease state is to remove the bag, the box, the can from their lifestyle. Anything in a bag, a box or a can will have one of two, if not both, of the toxins that really destroy the human body. And they are vegetable oils or sugar. And it's usually both. Uh, and they're like the most toxic combination that you can put into your body. Um, and they're both really, really bad. And, and, you know, we're obviously getting to the point where a lot of people are becoming 
familiar that sugar's not ideal and and you know like the, there's summits everywhere like the quit sugar sugar summit uh you know putting this information out there but people have these relationships with these foods uh where they you know they're like oh it can't be that bad it's just just a little bit of sugar just a little bit of this but in the same way that we talked about uh the the adaptation to intermittent fasting or water fasting we actually went through the same phase with our um, tolerance to sugar and flour because we started young where we you know we weren't eating tons of food and, and a lot of the food we we're eating was just you know mashed up small amounts of things and then over time we've just consumed more and more until the to the point where you know every meal is white bread with you know maybe bacon on it and and, and which is cooked in these terrible oils and so we got so we went through the same adaptation phase where we slowly built up <clears throat> excuse me we slowly built up our uh, consumption of these foods to the point now where we're like oh it's just a little thing um but if we were to actually wipe the slate clean and start again we'd be like whoa that's i can literally feel that sugar in my body like it's a drug or i can literally feel uh and it's like this this is what happens for me if i ever have fast food is that i've sort of spent years cleaning my system out that if i have fast food i can feel it slow my body down like i can feel my blood thicken it's it's so and that's what happens and most people would feel the same if they wiped their slate clean and cleaned their body got all of that stuff out and then tried again they would feel the impact of it so i would say the best thing that anyone can do for any disease state is to remove these deadly toxins and the other benefit of removing anything in a bag a box or a can is that you're going to remove the the artificial flavorings the artificial colorings the the substances that were not designed by nature to go into your body I know a lot of people hear the oh designed by nature sentence and roll their eyes like who's this hippie but humans are literally nature we we think we're not animals we are you know we are designed of nature and we were designed to interact with nature and as soon as we step outside of that from a nutritional standpoint we begin sacrificing our biology in the process and so the so we need to yeah start eliminating those foods and it's it's not it's not an easy process you know it's it's easy for me to say on this podcast but you know sometimes people need to set up a, a long-term plan for slowly detoxing their family their fridges their pantries um you know their lives some people have the personality where they need to go cold turkey and i would say that's most people because we're so heavily addicted we know that sugar is eight times more addictive than cocaine um it's a psychoactive substance it changes your state that's the reason most people go for it um and, and all it's a it's a natural human thing to want to change your state that's why humans are drawn to psilocybin like mushrooms or they're drawn to alcohol or they're drawn to sugar or cocaine or anything like that because humans are inherently curious in changing their state or outsourcing the responsibility of changing their state um, you can actually develop the skills within your own brain and own, in your own body to change your state without these uh, external factors so to come back to your question i think anything in a bag a box or a can eliminating that from your lifestyle will be the would be the best step that you can take nutritionally to delay or prevent disease states and that might look different for everybody like you were saying you know some people might can go cold turkey some people can't i like that i'm sure the one tweak a week works here too where again the the whole point is sustainability so however you know you can do that to make sure you know that you're not doing too much at one time because a lot of people only eat from a bag box and can so it might take a little bit of time to fully be able to go off of that 
And especially like you were saying, if it's an entire family too, that can be a process of getting, mm. you know, the whole family off of that. So well, the interesting thing from a family perspective is that, uh, and I work with a lot of mums, like a lot of mothers have the belief system within them that I have to look after everybody else first. And there's, and there's a story that I share with people from when I was a you know, younger, but, and then moved into my teenage years is, so I'm in a country town, used to walk to school. Uh, and we would always walk past this girl's house that we went to school with. And her mother was morbidly obese. Uh, I'm not super old, but I'm young, you know, old enough that I remember a time where morbidly obese was actually not super common. Right. And so everybody in the town knew this woman and she had a daughter that was in my sister's year in high school. And so my sister and I would always walk past her house and virtually see her every morning. And over the course of, of our high school, years this young girl who was quite small she's only about you know maybe five foot tall uh she became the same size as her mum and and that is because if you as a parent prioritize your family and other people over yourself whilst you have been led to believe that that's the best thing you can do for people and that's how you care for people the truth is with kids is that you are their biggest role model about how to conduct yourself in reality. And so if you do not self-care, your child is, you're setting your child up for disease because they will not self-care. And the world moving forward is becoming more toxic. So they will get to disease faster. So your child will copy your behavior. They literally will become you. The language, the foods they like, the habits they instill. So the biggest concern isn't the genetics that you hand down to your child. It's the habits and behaviors that you instill in them in the home and particularly in the kitchen. So when you're sacrificing yourself to keep everybody else in the family happy, remember you're setting an example that your child will copy. And if you're overweight, you're disease ridden or anything, that's setting them up for the same fate. So you, if you start self-prioritizing, they will learn to do that behavior as well. I want to shout up and down and just clap my hands. Like, can we just start play that over and over <laughs> and over again for people? It's all right. If you need to pause this and hit that 30 second rewind button, just listen to that over and over again, moms out there. Cause I have a five and seven year old and I totally agree with that 100%. Um, and my kids are pretty picky eaters. So they do eat things that are from a, a box sometimes, but I do believe in the modeling, the behavior, like you're saying. So even though they're eating whatever, you know, I'll be eating my steak and salad and be like, mm, this is so delicious. And I do know and hope that just by me modeling these behaviors, that they will come back around, you know, um, and that's what they're seeing. A lot of times we try to tell kids something, um, but really, like you're saying, they are, they are watching our actions more than our words. So if we're saying, oh, you know, you need to eat healthy while guzzling a can of soda or whatever, that's mixing the message for kids. And I think you're right that they're really paying a lot more attention to your actual behavior. Um, and I love just even making that leap into self-care too. If, you know, the more you take care of yourself, your kids are going to learn how to do that too. And I think moms, you know, mom guilt is real. And <laughs> a lot of moms out there feel, you know, they don't have enough time and they, you know, do feel like they need to sacrifice their, themselves. But if we can just change that um, thinking to more being that's actually more detrimental to your kids than helping them. Um, so take care of yourself first, the whole, you know, put your oxygen mask on first. I just totally. love that. I think that is so, so true. So thank you for saying that.
So welcome. (laughs) Once people kind of start making these nutritional changes, what else do you recommend and other big areas like lifestyle changes that you have found to be really effective for people to really optimize their health? So there's two, sleep and stress. So sleep is the foundation, foundational health variable of all. Literally, if you don't sleep well, everything in the day falls apart. You can make worse food choices. You can have arguments with your partner. The, the person that cut you off in the traffic will bother you more than usual. Uh, you know, you'll be more disorganized. The world will feel more chaotic. So literally sleep. We, and most people will be able to relate to this. If you have a good night's sleep, then everything else kind of falls into place. If you have a terrible night's sleep, everything else sort of falls apart everywhere, right? So sleep is the core variable. Um, but a lot of people sacrifice sleep as the first thing. It's like, oh, I'm on a new health plan. I've got to go to the gym. Sacrifice an hour and a half of sleep to go to the gym. Or, oh, I've got to do meal prep and cook. Um, you know, sacrifice an hour before I go to bed to do more cooking, right? And we always sacrifice that. And, and a lot of the research shows that you'd actually be better not going to the gym at all because the lack of sleep and the sleep interruption actually impedes your fat loss. So there's many instances where you're actually better to focus on getting the seven and a half to nine hours because getting up earlier and going, putting your body under stress at the gym is actually shifting your hormones around into a place where it's not favorable for fat loss. Because again, you go into that preservation mode that we talked about earlier, which is the body's like, oh, we're not recovering properly there's not enough sleep so we're just gonna we're just gonna keep the situation as it is because we don't know what's gonna happen uh and so sleep is super super important and a lot of people feel very strange about it because it's such a pro uh, an inactive thing and we're very familiar with doing proactive things like going to the gym or going shopping and buying different foods it's a really physical you know proactive thing look at me i'm doing the right thing for my health and then when we do oh you've got to sleep more and relax and do less we're so wired in the western world for doing 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 do more things do all the things look at me you know kind of thing that we get to this point that's like so what do I do when I go to bed? I just stare at the ceiling and I can't switch my brain off. Um, so again, again, we're going back to the one tweak a week that if you've slept five hours for 25 years, you're not, you're not going to be able to sleep eight hours anytime soon. So we're going to try five, five hours, 15 or five hours and a half, you know, and we're going to move slowly towards that because the older you get, the parts of your brain that facilitate deep sleep actually atrophy. So they die. Those parts of the brain die. So rebuilding those neurons has to be a slow process because, and you can definitely rebuild neurons and new, new thought patterns and the way that you behave and think. It's definitely challenging. Uh, but the point is that one tweak a week is essential because your brain doesn't have the physical structure to support such a radical change. Um, so sleep, I would say, is the number one most important health variable because uh, if we don't get enough of it as well, that where our forehead is, is the prefrontal cortex. And this is the area of the brain that um, in evolutionarily developed last and is responsible for rational and logical thinking. So imagine driving home from work at the end of the day on a day that you had lots of sleep and you smell, I don't know, fast food or the bakery or something. And you're like, oh, it smells delicious, but but I'm okay. I'm going to keep driving. Then go to a day that you had six, five or six hours sleep and you drive past and have that same smell come through the window. There's no question. Your rational thinking is out the window, literally out the window. You pull into the fast food place because 
that that part of the brain active like the prefrontal cortex activity is much lower so you're not able to engage those thoughts and then the next day you'll be like why couldn't i have thought in a better way and it all comes back to the lack of sleep because you just literally your brain withdrew resources so that it could spend the resources just keeping your body functioning because you didn't give it enough repair time the night before right uh so sleep's super important and then the other is stress so the western world is so chronically stressed, just perpetually stressed. And not only are we stressed from our lives, we actually add substances like coffee and drugs into our and sugar into our daily life to put ourselves in even more of a stress state to just get through the stress that we're experiencing. So a lot of people smash two, three, four, five coffees, which is just elevating their biological stress so they can survive the emotional stress that they have going on each day. And then they're so wired that they can't sleep at night or they go to alcohol or something to bring them down and, and reduce that stress. And so they're on this artificial roller coaster of going in and out of the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous uh, system, but they're not actually physically in control of it. They're using external substances to force them in and out. And their body is the the sacrifice for doing that. Uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people get overweight. A lot of people get adrenal fatigue. A lot of people get gut issues because they're just putting these substances in. Uh, and so learning to manage stress, again, not an easy task. Learning how to meditate or learning um, how to, or doing hypnosis or doing yoga or any of those types of things, they're not things that develop overnight and they might feel a bit weird because there's so many, so much space for thought. And that's the big thing that people get confronted by is that they have to spend time with their own mind. Um, and again, one tweak a week, but sleep and stress are so, so powerful. And getting those right, your, your nutrition choices will be easy if you can nail those two. Yeah, I totally agree with that, especially the sleep I've noticed, especially in the beginning of my journey going off sugar and flour when I slept better. Yeah, it was much easier to make those choices than when, you know, usually when we are tired is when we're looking for that pick me up. So what do you say, though, I sometimes have people that tell me, well, I only need five hours of sleep, though. I've only ever needed five hours of sleep. What do you say to those people? So statistically speaking, there are a, so a group of people that only need, I think, I think it's about six hours and 11 minutes, um, genetically <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's pretty much the bang on that. And so there's things called chronotype. So your chronotype is, is based on the circadian rhythm that works best for your body. And remembering that most of us, are, you know, our genetic lineage or genetic history is most likely not in the country that we're actually from. So the circadian rhythm that our DNA wants us to have is not necessarily in alignment with the, the city or the world that we're currently living in. And so so there is a, a small, small percentage of people that need less than seven and a half hours. But that percentage statistically, if you round it to a whole number, is zero. So, so the likelihood that you are the person that can survive on five hours sleep with no detriment to your biology, you're more likely to get struck by lightning. So I wouldn't bank on, <laughs> I wouldn't bank on you being that person. I would say that you're just so stressed, so perpetually stressed that you, your body physically can't sleep more than five hours. So again, we've got to slowly wind back the stress, practice different sleeping uh, pre-sleep techniques. Because the other thing is too, most people go to bed looking at their phone. They got blue and white light in their eyes. The brain perceives blue and white light to resemble the sun. So it stimulates our metabolism. It keeps us awake. And if you think that makes sense, at nighttime, we get sleepy. And when the sun's up, 
we are, we're awakened because the cortisol and our stress hormones are, are released because our body needs to operate in the day. And so if we have lights on at night, particularly white down lights in the, are, are the worst, uh, that tells our brain, oh, it must be the middle of the day. Stay awake, stay awake. So a lot of people that are on five hours sleep and think they can't make that change, there's likely a lot of input that's telling their brain that all they need is five hours, but biologically, they're paying the price for that. Yeah. I can't wait till I have a person that says, you know, Siobhan, I only need five hours. I'll be able, well, you at least need six hours and 11 minutes. So let's get there. <laughs> Most likely you need more, but yeah. I mean, I think that's so fascinating and I'm a big, you know, I think what I tell people is coming up with their own little sleep routine, just like you do with kids. A lot of times they have their bedtime routine to help them wind down. And I think that's so important as an adult. And I think everyone probably has their sleep window. Like for me, I have to go to bed at 10 and wake up at six. Like that's just my window. The nights that I end up staying up later than that, I cannot, it takes me much longer to fall asleep and I'm still up by six. So I think it's really uh, interesting if you start experimenting and kind of see what your natural window is too. And then, like you said, a tweak a week of trying to maybe elongate that if you're not like for me, I really do better with eight hours. So, um, and I do, I have a whole, like by nine o'clock at night, I am not on screens. I am not uh, watching TV. I start reading I, or I take a bath, just things again, to start kind of letting my body know it's time, for, time for bed, just like I do with my kids too. Um, and then stress. Absolutely. Yeah. That's huge, <laughs> learning how to manage our stress. And I think this past year with the pandemic and everything going on has just been a hugely, hugely stressful year for everybody, probably even more so than usual for people. Um, for and sure. yeah, just really has been challenging. So um, what other kind of, I guess, with thinking about that, I know we talked, you talked about meditation and yoga. Do you have any other strategies that you have found for that might be good for people to reduce stress? Uh, my go-to for people and myself actually is uh, breath work. Mm. Uh, so it's something that we can, I, the reason I like it is because it's a good step towards creating a space where you don't have to think about anything. So with breath work, it's literally everybody think, probably thinks my breath just does its thing by itself. And yes, it does. But you can actually do some really great things with it when you move it from the involuntary nervous system into the voluntary nervous system. So you take active control over it. Um, and we're very uh, under oxygenated in the modern world because we a lot of uh, historically a lot of tribes and practices um, that come out of different countries and cultures have a very active breathing process where they're conscious of it at least for a period of the day and obviously yoga and meditation uh, focus on this as well but breath work is a really good place to start because you can do it for literally 20 seconds 30 seconds at a time i have clients where literally they're they're stressed like the sort of the you know the entrepreneur types that are just go 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 they might have uh, a situation where they set an alarm every single hour and for one minute 60 seconds they just close their eyes focus on the breath and there's a breathing technique called four seven eight so you breathe in for four hold it in for seven and release for eight that might be challenging for people in the beginning so you can just shorten those numbers but work up to it and make sure you're sitting down the first time you do it because you can get a little lightheaded with that extra oxygen your brain's not used to it yet 
Uh, so, and that just really slows the body down. I would also recommend doing the four, seven, eight before you eat. So sit down and prepare your digestive system because a lot of people are eating on the go. So they're e eating when their nervous system is in a stressed response. And when we're in fight or flight, our, our body isn't worried about digesting or assimilating the nutrition appropriately. It's just like, get this out of here. So you, it might result in diarrhea. It might result in you feeling sick. It might result in things going to fat storage that wouldn't normally. Uh, so if you can prepare your body with a minute or two of four, seven, eight breathing, um, or even just box breathing. So just four in, four out, four in, four out, or, or four in, hold for four, out for four, that kind of stuff all will help your nervous system calm down and move into the rest, digest and repair. That's where you want to be before you eat. That's where you want to be before you go to sleep. That's where you want to be when you're having a stressful conversation. You, you might be like, I've just got to take a minute to get, get, and it will allow your rational thinking to be accessible again. It'll allow you to calm down. There'll be less uh, cortisol and adrenaline in your blood, which is definitely beneficial. So breathing is the first place to start because everybody already knows how to breathe. So it's a first, as a place to start, I think it's awesome. <laughs> I love that. Such a good tip. I don't know why I've never thought of. I do the four, seven, eight breath all the time before bed. I was going to say, that's a great thing to do before bed. If you feel like your mind's just going, going, going. I never thought about it before eating though. So thank you. That's brilliant for mm. saying that because, um, yeah, even though I eat really well now, I eat fast a lot of times or, you know, especially meals with my kids. I'm getting them stuff. I'm up and down, up and down. I just really, I'm going to challenge myself, Maddie, this week, <laughs> doing some four, seven, eight before I eat, because I love I think that stuff all works together too. You know, if we're talking about optimizing your overall health, let's just put it into the nutrition of removing the bag box and can from, you know, your lifestyle, getting enough sleep, good sleep and reducing stress. If we just, you know, do those three things, but they also really work together too, you know, Absolutely. so you know, you know, like we already talked about, if you're tired, you might be eating more. You could also be more stressed where if you're eating better, you might sleep better. Uh, you might be less stressed. I mean, they all really, really work together. So I think it's an approach where you have to kind of tackle all of these things. And I think a lot of people are getting that nutrition is really important. Um, but then like uh, you said, might miss out on sleep to go to the gym. I also want people to pause that section where you talked about that and replay it if you need to a few times. <laughs> Maddie gave you permission <laughs> to skip the gym <laughs> in order to get more sleep. If that's, you know, not really, but if you're, if that's what you're sacrificing is sleep, um, yeah, you probably need the sleep more. Uh, so I just think that's all really, really well, good information. There's so many people that are doing the right thing. Like I've worked with so many people that have, have been doing the right thing, doing the exercise, eating the salads, but they're sacrificing so much uh, when it comes to sleep and also putting so much stress on themselves that the right thing nutritionally doesn't seem to be working because the other areas are out of balance. So, you know, and a lot of people beat themselves up. I'm not, I'm not hammering myself hard enough at the gym or I'm not starving myself enough with rabbit food. And they, they might actually be nailing the diet. They might actually be nailing the workouts, but there's just so much sacrificed on the other end of the scale. Yeah. Oh, I think that's really, really important for people to think about. And I think that is so, so true. You know, I am an 
certified health coach. And that was one of the things that we talked about. It doesn't matter how much broccoli you eat. If you have unhealthy relationships, stressful life, you know, toxic work environment, it doesn't matter how much broccoli you eat, you're still not going to be at optimal health. So it really is the full picture. And I think the stress and sleep part of that are huge. Like people just don't recognize that. And like you said, might beat themselves up because they're not getting and then they're stressing themselves out more and making, you know, yeah. just perpetuating this cycle. Um, it's a downward spiral. It is a downward spiral. So I think that's really important for people listening to really think about. And I hope you'll even listen to this podcast again if you if you need to, just to t- take some of these gems, because I think that's been really, really good advice, Maddie. I really appreciate it. And unfortunately, we're about out of time, but I just wanted to leave... Um, use some time to talk about anything else that we didn't really get to. You know, we talked in the beginning before we were recording that I love that term nutritional optimization. I just love that term so much. I don't know if you want to just talk about that a little bit more. Anything else that you feel we didn't get to that you want to share? Yeah, sure. So usually at the at the end of interviews when we're at this at this point people expect you know the scientists to make some kind of claim about studies or something like this and that's all super super useful but in order to be nutritionally optimal or to be managing your stress or to have great sleep the truth is, of the matter is that you actually need to work on your emotions because a lot of the behaviors that you work with, especially when you interact with food, are driven by emotional factors and they're, they're tools that you use for emotional response. And so um, it's, you know, it's, and that's arguably the most challenging part of the journey is figuring out how to uh, roll back some of these uh, relationships that you have with different foods that have been there for maybe 30 or 40 years. Uh, and so, and, and learning to manage your emotions in a different way. So to become nutritionally optimal, uh, you know, you need to understand the emotions that are driving the behavior and then not just eliminate it. This is a big problem that people uh, often think is that you know being healthy is just about subtraction. There's actually three, when it comes to nutritional optimization, there's three things. So there's subtraction, substitution, and addition, right? And a lot of people just think of the first one, of a subtraction of, oh, I'm gonna starve myself and miss all the good foods. You should never rep- pull a food out of your diet and not replace it with something. Whether that be a food or whether that be an emotional management practice or whether that be a breathing technique or whether that be a walk around the block, whatever it might be, you should never, because emotionally, we're missing something. Remember, diet culture is ineffective long term because it's about deprivation. And if we deprive ourselves of something without appropriately supporting that space, we're going to go back to the thing that was there before because we haven't filled the space. It's like pulling pulling a chair a leg of a chair out and not thinking to put something else there at some point the chair is going to fall over right so we want to get to to a place where we're nutritionally optimal emotional management is a really really important part of that journey to be able to survive you know figure out the subtraction and figure out what works for you then then understand and learn what you need to substitute it with in order to make sure that that chair is balanced and then addition might be where you head into the space of adding in new foods that you've never tried before um, and, and it all comes down in the very end to whole real food uh, so that's the that's where we want to go whether you're carnivore whether you're you know vegetarian whatever it is as long as it comes out of the earth or from the earth then you're good but having said that don't forget chemotherapy is plant-based so the the, the words plant-based keto 
like a lot of these dieting terms have been hijacked by advertising and marketing and, and protein bars. Like they're all full of sugar, refined sugars and carbohydrates and trans fats and hydrogenated fats and vegetable oils. So you really should be eating, you know, to be nutritionally optimal once you've got your emotional management, um, you know, sorted. And, and that that's a lifelong journey, I should say. Like it's very hard to become a monk overnight, right? So, um, so we need to, you know, progress slowly with that. But yeah, we want to get to whole real food, have some plants, have some animals, and, and you should be good. As, and as soon as we enter anything packaged, we're risking introducing refined sugars and carbohydrates into our body. That's not to say that they're, you know, foods you should never have again in the rest of your life. But once you have the appropriate emotional management tools, you'll be able to engage with those foods at a time that is not in response to a negative or uncomfortable series of emotions. And you'll be able to, to enjoy it for what it is and feel no need to overindulge as well. So Again, you know, one tweak a week, right? It's a progressive approach. Progress, not perfection. Yes. Oh, thank you. I love the emotional management tool concept too. I think that was really, really important as well for people. So thank you for everything you've just said. This has been wonderful. And I will make sure if people want to reach out to you, we'll link all of your information here for people. Um and your podcast too, which I really highly encourage people to listen to as well. So I'll make sure that's all here for people if they want to get in touch with you. So thank you so much. Thanks, Siobhan. I really appreciate this conversation. I think this is really important stuff and I really value the work that you're doing as well. So I appreciate the opportunity to talk. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and remember, life is so much sweeter without sugar.